Welcome back to the book podcast, and uh, this is episode nine of the reading from Swan's Way and In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. So we've been through his uh, waking up. He's also now introduced Monsieur Swan, who's one of the main main uh, people in the first book, and also the how his father had lost his wife, father of Monsieur Swan. So we're going to continue reading and then have some comments towards the end. So, Our utter ignorance of the brilliant part which Swan always was playing in the world of fashion was, of course, due in part to his own reserve and discretion, but also to the fact that middle-class people in those days took what was almost a Hindu view of society, which they held to consist of sharply defined castes, so that everyone at his birth found himself called to that station in life which his parents already occupied, and nothing except the chance of a brilliant career or of a good marriage could extract you from that station or admit you to a superior caste. Monsieur Swan, the father, had been a stockbroker, and so young Swan found himself immured for life in a caste where one's fortune, as in a list of taxpayers, varied between such and such limits of income. We knew the people with whom his father had associated, and so we knew his own associates, the people with whom he was in a position to mix. If he knew other people besides, those were youthful acquaintances on whom the old friends of the family, like my relatives, shut their eyes all the more good-naturedly that Swan himself. After he was left an orphan, still came most faithfully to see us. But we would have been ready to, to wager that the people outside our acquaintance whom Swan knew were, if the sort to whom he would not have dared to raise his hat, had he met them while he was walking with ourselves. Had there been such a thing as a determination to apply to Swan a social coefficient peculiar to himself, as distinct from all the other sons of other stockbrokers in his father's position, his coefficient would have been rather lower than theirs, because, leading a very simple life and having always had a craze for antiques and pictures, he now lived and piled up his collections in an old house which my grandmother longed to visit, but which stood on the Croix d'Orléans, a neighborhood in which my great-aunt thought it most degrading to be quartered. Are you really a connoisseur now? She would say to him. I ask for your own sake, as you are likely to have fakes palmed off on you by the dealers, for she did not, in fact, endow him with any critical faculty, and had no great opinion of the intelligence of a man who, in conversation, would avoid serious topics and shewed a very dull preciseness not only when he gave us kitchen recipes, going into the most minute details, but even when my grandmother's sisters were talking to him about art. When challenged by them to give an opinion or to express his admiration for some picture, he would remain almost impolitely silent and would then make amends by furnishing, if he could, some fact or other about the gallery in which the picture was hung or the date at which it had been painted. But as a rule, he would content himself 
with trying to amuse us by telling us the story of his latest adventure, and he would have a fresh story for us on every occasion. With some one whom we all ourselves knew, such as the Combray chemist, or our cook, or our couchman. These stories certainly used to make my great aunt laugh, but she would never tell whether that was on account of the absurd parts which Swan invariably made himself play in the adventures, or of the wit that he showed in telling us them. It is easy to see that you are a regular character, Monsieur Swan. And she was the only member of her family who could be described as a trifle common. She would always take care to remark to strangers when Swan was mentioned that he could easily, if he had wished to, have lived in the Boulevard Hausmann or the Avenue de l'Opera, and that he was the son of old Monsieur Swan, who must have left four or five million francs, but that it was a fad of his. A fad which, moreover, she thought was bound to amuse other people so much that in Paris, when Monsieur Swan called on New Year's Day, bringing her a little packet of marron glaces, she never failed, if there were strangers in the room, to say to him, Well, Monsieur Swan, and do you still live next door to the bonded waltz, so as to be sure of not missing your train when you go to Lyon? And she would peep out of the corner of her eye, over her glasses, at the other visitors. But if anyone had suggested to my aunt that this Swan, who, in his capacity as the son of old Monsieur Swan, was fully qualified to be received by any of the upper middle class, the most respected barristers and solicitors of Paris, though he was perhaps a trifle inclined to let his hereditary privilege go into abeyance, had another almost secret existence of a wholly different kind, that when he left our house in Paris, saying that he must go home to bed, he would no sooner have turned a corner than he would stop, retrace his steps, and be off to some drawing room on whose, like no stockbroker or associate of stockbrokers, had ever set eyes. That would have seemed to my aunt as extraordinary as, to a woman of wide reading, the thought of being herself on terms of intimacy with Aristeus of knowing that he would, when he had finished his conversations with her, plunge deep into the realm of Thetis, into an empire wailed from mortal eyes, in which Virgil depicts him as being received with open arms, or to be content with an image more likely to have occurred for her, for she had seen it painted on the plates we used for biscuits as Combray as the thought of having had to dinner Ali Baba, who, as soon as she found himself alone and unobserved, would make his way into the cave resplendent with his unsuspected treasures. So we're already now in, in the book where Bruce is just giving us long, long details about the, the people, the characters in the story, full of, of little observations, especially the social observations of of like the interaction when then someone tries to talk about art and he doesn't know how to respond, he would say something about the gallery. Uh, this is very kind of typical Proust how he portrays people in the way that they are uh, on a micro level trying to navigate the social landscape, especially in this world that he grows up in, which is a upper middle class or aristocratic 
kind of declining aristocracy in, in Paris around 1900. One day, when he came to, when he had come to see us after dinner in Paris and had begged pardon for being in evening clothes, Françoise, when he had gone, told us that she had got it from his coachman that he had been dining with a princess. A pretty sort of princess, drawled my aunt. I know them. And she shrugged her shoulders without raising her eyes from her knitting, serenely ironical. Altogether, my aunt used to treat him with scant ceremony. Since she was of the opinion that he ought to feel flattered by our invitations, she thought it only right and proper that he would never come to see us in summer without a basket of peaches or raspberries from his garden, and that from each of his visits to Italy he should bring back some uh, photographs of old masters for me. It seemed quite natural, therefore, to send to him whenever we wanted a recipe for some special sauce or for a pineapple salad for one of our big dinner parties, to which he himself would not be invited, not seeming of sufficient importance to be served up to new friends who might be in our house for the first time. If the conversation turned upon the princes of the House of France, gentlemen, you and I will never know, will we? And don't want to, do we? My great-aunt would say tartly to Swan, who had, perhaps, a letter from Twickenham in his pocket. She would make him play accompaniments and turn over music on evenings when my grandmother's sister sang, manipulating this creature, so rare and refined at other times and in other places, with the rough simplicity of a child who will play with some curio from the cabinet no more carefully than if it were a penny toy. Certainly Swan, who was a familiar figure in all the clubs of those days, differed hugely from the Swan created in my great-aunt's mind when, of an evening, in our little garden at Combray, after the two shy peals had sounded from the gate, she would vitalize by injecting into it everything she had heard about the Swan family, the vague and unrecognizable shape which began to appear, with my grandmother in its wake against the background of shadows and could at least be identified by the voice, sound of its voice. But then, even in the most insignificant details of our daily life, none of us can be said to constitute a material whole, which is identical for everyone and need only be turned up like a page in an account book or the record of a will. Our social personality is created by the thoughts of other people. Even the simple act which we describe as, describe as seeing someone we know is, to some extent, an intellectual process. So this is also very typical for Proust that he's describing all, all, all the details for pages and then he, he just switches into something profound in, in, uh, in the, the commentary or, the, or his reflections on how the social the world is working and then how a personality or an identity is working and how this is imposed by others, um, which is a, also one of many, many themes in his work, uh, how we are changing and how we are composed by different parts that people impose on us. And also, as he says, that it's an intellectual process. 
We pack the physical outline of the creature we see with all the ideas we have already formed about him. And in the complete picture of him, which we compose in our minds, those ideas have certainly the principal place. In the end, they come to fill out so completely the curve of his cheeks, to follow so exactly the line of his nose, they blend so harmoniously in the sound of his voice, that this seems to be no more than a transparent envelope, so that each time we see the face or hear the voice, it is our own ideas of him which we recognize and to which we listen. There is something similar here to how he starts uh, explaining in the beginning when you wake up and how you impose your, your model of the room you sleep in. You impose it on your surroundings. So it, as he says, look, the second you wake up, you, your thought or your consciousness has not yet kind of filled the room, but then you impose it outwards. And then he's using some of the same descriptions here about people, that we have the models or the concepts of a person. And then when we see the person or hear the person, we impose it on, on that person. And so, no doubt, from the swan they had built up for their own purposes, my family had left out, in their ignorance, a whole crowd of the details of his daily life in the world of fashion, details by means of which other people, when they met him, saw all the graces enthroned in his face and stopping at the line of his arched nose as at a natural frontier. But they contrived also to put into a face from which its distinction had been evicted, a face vacant and roomy as an untenanted house, to plant in the depths of its unvalued eyes a lingering sense, uncertain but not unpleasing, half memory and half oblivion, of idle hours spent together after weekly dinners, round the car table or in the garden, during our companionable country life. Our friend's bodily frame had been so well lined with his sense and with various early memories of his family that their own special swan had become to my people a complete and living creature. So that even now I have the feeling of leaving someone I know for another quite different person when, going back in memory, I pass from the swan whom I knew later and more intimately to this early swan. This early swan in whom I can distinguish the charming mistakes of my childhood and who, incidentally, is less like his successor than he is like the other people I knew at that time. As though one's life were a series of galleries in which all the, all the portraits of one, of any one period had a marked family likeness. The same, so to speak, tonality. This early swan abounding in leisure fragrant with the scent of the great chestnut tree, of baskets of raspberries, and of a sprig of tarragon. So here's just describing one way of looking at a life or a person, like different, or yourself, that, and since it's very visual from the beginning, we have all the different rooms from his childhood, now you have some scenes from Mr. Mr. Swan, and then he's in the garden with his parents, and then he's describing it at the same time about Monsieur Swan and himself, that earlier parts of your life is like a series of galleries with images that constitutes a sort of a, uh, a little world or a stage in your life. 
and then also how the differences between these galleries can be more different than uh, between yourself at an early stage and someone close to you at that time like just uh, alluding to how how much things can change in life so um this is another kind of a technique that you we're going to see many times that he's, he's just spread kind of zooming out and then giving us a visual image of how a lifetime can be this string of of little sets of of, of uh, images in little galleries okay so we're gonna stop it there and um just want to say thank you so much for listening and um, we'll be back soon <laughs>